Welcome to this edition of Amazing Creation. I'm your host, Fred Johnson. This show is about the credibility of the scriptures as they pertain to the creation of the world and our origins, and in contrast to the dogma of evolution. The show is produced by the Triangle Association for the Science of Creation. That's shortened to TASC, T-A-S-C, a Raleigh, North Carolina group of scientists and lay folks whose mission is to increase awareness of the scientific evidence supporting the plain, straightforward understanding of the biblical account of creation. Evolution is almost universally now taught in our public schools, colleges, and universities as the origin of all of life we see around us. But there are many, including highly educated scientists, who see evolution not only as impossible, but moreover as untenable when made to stand beside the revealed Word of God in the Bible. Our guest today is again Dr. Gerald Van Dyke, a retired professor of plant and fungal sciences from North Carolina State University, where he taught and did research for 38 years. As stated before, Gerald is a past chairman of TASC and presently a board member. Last time Gerald was here, we discussed aspects of the dilemma concerning the origin of life on Earth. So today, Gerald, what would you like to discuss on this topic? Thank you, Fred. It's good to be with you again and talk about the beginning of life on Earth. As I stated last time on this subject, all scientists must face the fact that life did somehow start on the Earth, or at least we presume it did. So how do we approach trying to explain something which was a past event and was not observed directly but must have happened? Can we reconstruct the past? That is the fundamental question we must ask and try to answer. Again, I emphasize that evolutionists must have a life beginning before they can try to explain all other aspects of evolution, and they must also explain how it happened. Last time you shared with us some of the attempts by evolutionists to construct lab experiments to reenact how life might have had its beginning on Earth. Yes, Fred, I talked about the artificiality of these attempts because they were done under highly controlled conditions with preconceived ideas about the chemical starting materials and the environmental parameters. Of course, when one knows what life consists of, then one can work backwards and decide what would be needed to get those results. That's not the way science is usually done, but let's give the scientists the benefit of the doubt and see what they did to try to prove life could have formed on Earth by conditions that might have been as they interpret it. First of all, we don't see any of what they propose happening today. In fact, one of the premier facts of science is that life does not happen spontaneously. This was put to rest by several scientists, especially Reddy and Louis Pasteur, So conditions are actually more conducive for life to form today than they would have been in what was probably a very hostile environment on the early Earth, as presumed by evolutionary scientists. Last time you described some of the assumptions that were made in the experiments to show life could have happened in the early Earth atmosphere. Could you briefly describe those again for our listening audience? Yes, Fred, I indicated that the beginning chemicals and the controlled conditions, such as temperature, atmospheric pressure, and lack of oxygen, notice I mentioned lack of oxygen, were the basis for the experiments used to show how life formed naturally in the beginning. 
Fred, I've watched some of the National Geographic films on TV that show what scientists claim the early Earth's atmosphere was like. Of course, these are all evolutionarily oriented. And it was, according to them, a totally hostile environment, as they depict it. And then they show how it cooled and formed water pools that were supposedly ideal sites for life to suddenly spring forth. It leaves me incredulous every time I watch these. But, well, anyway, back to the point. Scientists who try to reenact early life formation use elaborate equipment, such as glassware, specifically designed and shaped and filled with their prescribed concoctions of chemicals that are then subjected to electrical sparks or some heat form to get the result required results of life's beginning chemistry. Last time you indicated that they do actually achieve some kind of simple life chemistry. Yes, actually they do, uh, primarily because they know what they need to start with to get the required results. The experiments by Stanley Miller and his associates that I mentioned last time that were done under artificial conditions, produced a crude mixture of amino acids. Now, amino acids are the building blocks for proteins. But let's be clear about the various aspects of these experiments. First, as I indicated, they used man-made equipment, controlled environmental conditions such as temperature and pressure, The chemicals they assumed were present on the early earth, and all of this suited for the results they expected from this procedure. So then they concluded that they have shown life could have had its beginning in that way, and therefore we can now move on to discussions about the other aspects of evolution. I mentioned last time that such scientists as Francis Crick, the man who co-discovered DNA and is an evolutionist, or at least would not admit that an intelligent designer could have created life, is said that he does not even believe that life could have ever begun on Earth from what we know about life conditions. So therefore, his conclusion is that life came to Earth from somewhere else. This is the panspermia theory. This, of course, as I pointed out last time, only raises the question of how life started in the first place. If it started somewhere else, then how did that happen? So last time you said you would elaborate on some of the other problems concerning the origin of life experiments, besides the artificial conditions and the manipulation of starting materials. So what are some other problems with these experiments and conclusions? Fred, as I suggested last time, anyone can make up any story they want to, and someone will probably believe it. First of all, for the experiments that we have been discussing, they would have to have been done as they did them in an oxygen-free environment. I mentioned this before, that that's a critical aspect of these experiments, because otherwise, as quickly as chemicals began forming in the Earth's original atmosphere, as they believe it was, these chemicals would have completely disintegrated or fallen apart. In other words, the chemical reactions would not have held together uh, as they did them in their artificial experiments. I found a few articles in Nature and Science magazines, of course these would be uh, evolutionarily oriented, that are written by evolutionists who question some of the assumptions about the kind of chemicals that were on the early Earth. 
For example, these articles question the availability of certain chemicals and the proportions used in Stanley Miller's experiments. There are some other problems as well. For example, the amino acids produced in the glassware by Miller are in isolation. They are not exposed to the environment, so they are very unstable. For these amino acids to be used in forming proteins, they would have to have somehow organized together in certain combinations to form uh, particular proteins. Furthermore, they would have to be in the correct amino acid uh, forms. Since there's about 20 known amino acids in living organisms, all of those would have to have been available at some point to make life forms as we see them today. The Miller experiments produced only a few of the 20 known amino acids. These amino acids were of approximately equal numbers of right and left-handed isomers. What this means is that the isomers are as, as if you held up your hands, you would see that they are opposite in configuration to each other. Thus, we say they are structurally right and left-handed. Since today, all amino acids in living systems are of the left-handed isomers, these would have to have been selected for and the right-handed ones discarded. We don't know of any way that only one isomer, namely left-handed isomers, being the only ones in living organisms today, uh, would have happened in these kinds of experiments. This is curious to us as creationists that the isomers are all left-handed. We suppose God this did this to show us he created life. <clears throat> this is part of his signature. So it sounds like there are a number of problems that this primordial soup of chemicals would have had to have overcome on its way to becoming life. That's exactly correct, Fred. Of course, the biblical account, which we believe in, describes all life forms being there from the start, and plants would be making oxygen to provide the oxygen required for life forms, especially animals and humans. The problem really just begins at this point. Now these amino acids must join, only the left-handed ones, and form proteins. Proteins, of course, are only one of the organic compounds needed for life. They're carbohydrates, steroids, fats, DNA, and other compounds that are also necessarily, uh, necessary components of life. In biology, we agree that the basic unit of life is a cell. The cell is bounded by a complex membrane, which is also made up of proteins. This is the unit of life that holds the chemicals and where biological reactions occur, such as photosynthesis, respiration, and other important reactions that form the building blocks for life. Biologists generally agree that proteins need DNA, and DNA needs protein in order to form. So how did proteins get their start, and how did DNA get its start? So we have a chicken and egg um, dilemma here. Which came first, proteins or DNA, and how did we get one without the other? I'm glad you mentioned all this because some of our listeners may have had the impression 
They're just presumably solving the problem of how to get a few basic components of life chemistry is all we need to know. But you're saying that this is just the beginning of the real problem of how we got a cell and its many parts. Yes, Fred, that's the point. From these experiments, we have only the simplest aspects of life. For example, the amino acids would have to combine to form proteins, which would be another major step in the process of forming life. And then once these proteins are made, then the next large leap is to get the other organic compounds. And then even a larger leap is to make a cell. If this did happen as they say, then how did the first cell get organized into more complex cell clusters to form more complex organisms? This in turn raises questions such as how did the sexes come to be? And all the unique and complex structures such as eyes, nerves, the heart, the mind, the intellect, appreciation for music, the ability to worship our creator, and the list goes on. So, Fred, this is why you and I are part of TASC, the Triangle Association for the Science of Creation, because we know that many people, even especially some Christians, have been deceived by the scientific community to think that they, the scientific community, have answered the tough questions and that we should all just line up and bow to the God of evolution because that is fact and the Bible is just fairy tales believed only by the ignorant and those who are uninformed about science. But what we're discovering is that what they do is not really science. They, of course, forget that we know the true God and that we know He has provided the answers in His Word and that we can trust in His sovereignty and His love and forgiveness for us. We also know that He gave us His Son, that we might have everlasting life through Jesus by accepting the free gift of salvation by believing on his name. Well, thank you, Dr. Van Dyke. And thanks to you listeners for tuning in. You can find out more about TASC and some good information about the scientific study of the world from the perspective of those who take the scripture seriously at the TASC website, task-creationscience.org. That's T-A-S-C-creationscience.org. There you can learn about TASC's monthly meetings, which are open to the public, subscribe to the monthly newsletter, and read and download previous articles. Until next time, this has been Fred Johnson for Amazing Creation.